I'm standing in front of one of the weirdest things you can see in the city of Boston. All around me, there's like these big new giant condo buildings, glass, really tall. And then on one side, there's like a government office building. There is a highway overpass behind me. And right in the middle of this busy intersection, like on this little sort of triangular wedge is this short little squat tenement building. It's brick, it's four stories high. And you can tell that it used to be part of like a row of identical homes because there's no windows on either of the side, they're just flat. And today there's like a big iPhone billboard on the side. And this building totally looks out of place with everything around it. It looks like it was cut and pasted out of like an old historical map. It looks like it was just forgotten here. I'm Amanda McGowan and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. And today we're taking you to the last tenement in Boston's old West End. It used to be one of the city's most diverse communities and has since come to represent everything that can go wrong with urban planning. We'll visit the old West End after this. Today, there's not much that's physically left of Boston's old West End. It was demolished in the 1950s as part of an urban renewal campaign, which is kind of a euphemistic way of saying that this neighborhood was torn down to make way for housing for wealthier people than the ones who used to live here. But there is a place that you can go to feel like you're still in the old neighborhood. YouTube. Hi, welcome to the West End Video Newsletter. Okay, uh, tonight we have as a guest Charlotte Ploss, old-time West Ender and social activists uh, extraordinaire. Even she decades was, uh, after they moved away, old West Enders keep in touch. They hold reunions, publish a newsletter, and from the 1980s to the mid-2000s, they even had a monthly TV show on a local public access channel. If I remember right, you lived on Brighton Street. Yep. You were on the corner, and you lived in the same building where there was uh, Anna Kay lived? Right next door to Anna Kay. Right. And on the second floor with the Roberto family. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. that's right. That's um, right. I remember them very well. Uh, gee, I remember a lot of people from that, that street. No, um, I hung around. Hours and hours of this show have been digitized and put on YouTube by the West End Museum. And yes, there's also a museum dedicated to this neighborhood. And when you listen to these recordings, you can almost imagine that you're walking past rows and rows of tenement buildings popping into a grocery store here or a butcher shop there, and hearing bits and pieces of conversation in Yiddish or Italian or Russian. Here's former West Ender Barbara Lavolo. I had Albanian girlfriend, I had Irish girlfriends, I had Italian girlfriends, I had Czech girlfriends. Yeah, they, there was a mixture of all different, and we never thought anything about it, really. It wasn't any big deal. That diversity was a reflection of the neighborhood's history. Early on, it was home mostly to wealthy white Bostonians. In the early 1800s, a black community formed here. And by 1860, two thirds of all of Boston's black residents made their home in the West End. By the mid 1800s, waves of immigrants started arriving in Boston. First, the Irish, then Eastern Europeans, then Italians. 
the West End became a second settlement, or a place where an immigrant would move after they'd made a little bit of money and had some more stability. Here's Sebastian Belfonte. Today, he's the director of the West End Museum. The neighborhood developed into Boston's most or second most ethnically diverse historical neighborhood. I don't think any neighborhood today actually maintains anything close to that degree of diversity. And one thing that West Enders repeat over and over on that old show is that their neighborhood really felt like a community to them, where everyone knew each other and looked out for each other. Here's former West Ender Anna K. Stevenson Grant. But I never realized how poor I was until I moved out of the West End. You know, if you're broke now, you have to go to somebody. If you were broke on the West End, everybody was coming to you. Uh, I remember I didn't have enough money to get a whole loaf of bread and go get three slices of bread. And they find out that's all you had. Get out of here, take the bread and go home. Where can you do that now? These interviews were done decades after the West End was destroyed. So maybe nostalgia makes you forget things that weren't so great. One sociologist noted that there wasn't a lot of privacy in the old neighborhood and that there was a strong emphasis on social conformity. Another academic wrote that, in hindsight, people may have downplayed any ethnic or racial tensions within the neighborhood. And when we talk about diversity in the West End, we are mostly talking about white European ethnic groups though there were some Black residents as well. And whatever charm the neighborhood had was largely lost on outsiders. To them, the West End was overcrowded, rundown, poor. There had been various proposals to clean out the neighborhood since the early 1900s, but none of them gained much traction. Then the 1950s arrived. After the Second World War, people left cities in droves for the suburbs. And when they moved out, they took their tax dollars with them. In 1949, the federal government offered up a solution to cities that were strapped for cash. Under a new housing act, cities could apply for federal funds to help buy back land in, quote, slums or blighted areas. Then this land would be sold to a developer at a below market price and converted into a more lucrative property, like housing for the upper middle class. In 1950, Boston's mayor, John Hines, submitted a plan to the feds to redevelop huge swaths of the city, about 20% of all of Boston's land. One of the first neighborhoods on that list was the West End. It was perfectly located, just a short walk from downtown where all the big department stores were. Here's Sebastian again. There was a view of it as um, just a space that wasn't necessary, that didn't provide anything of value, and that could be replaced with something better, meaning an upper middle class uh, neighborhood that would provide the shoppers for Filene's and Jordan Marsh and other downtown retailers and things that uh, the city valued more at the time. In 1953, the city officially announced its plans for urban renewal as this project came to be known. The city told landlords in the West End that they should stop taking care of their buildings because they would soon be torn down anyway. Eventually, the city stopped collecting garbage, too. The neighborhood began to visibly deteriorate. Vacancy rates went up. Then in uh, 1957-ish, the city filed its actual, like, final papers and photographs and everything with the federal government. The, The filing basically 
said, you know, look, buildings aren't being maintained. It's at like half occupancy and there's garbage everywhere. Clearly a blighted area has to go. West Enders did not think that their neighborhood was a blighted area. So when the city held official hearings in 1957, some residents went and complained. But they were told that at this point, basically, they already had approval. It was too late to change anything. Like, we acknowledge that we were maybe wrong, that your neighborhood maybe isn't a slum, or that you maybe are more attached to it than we thought you you were. But who cares? Paperwork's done. It's going to go. In April of 1958, West End residents received official letters from the city announcing the demolition plans. The taking, as it came to be known, had begun. By the summer of 1960, everyone had moved out and the neighborhood was razed. Charlotte Ploss remembers her final glimpses of the old West End. I remember uh, seeing the, the crane right opposite mm-hmm. the house, right opposite the alleyway, uh, moving in. And uh, my mother packed us all off to camp. That was the last I ever saw of the West End intact. And the next time I saw it, when I walked along Cambridge Street, I could see all the way to the other side to Stowell Drive because it was just a rubble of uh, bricks and, and wires. After demolition came the so called renewal. The land was sold at a bargain to a developer who also happened to be a former campaign organizer for the mayor. Within just a few years, this developer built a luxury apartment building called Charles River Park with multiple parking garages, two swimming pools, a hotel, a shopping center, and 2,300 high-end units. And as for the old West Enders, Well, the city's earliest plans had promised residents that there would be opportunities to stay on in the old neighborhood in brand new low-rent housing units. But by the time Charles River Park went up, those plans had evaporated. The cost of one room in Charles River Park was about the same as what West Enders had paid for five or six room apartments. So that was the first part of redevelopment. The rest happened much more slowly. There were lots in the West End that were empty for as much as 35 years. Large portions of it, in fact, just functioned as one of the largest parking lots in the United States for quite a long time. Outside of Charles River Park, there's these billboards. They say, if you lived here, you'd be home now. They're still up today. I imagine that the idea here was that commuters would see these while stuck in traffic and imagine living in the new developments. But given the history here, these messages seem almost cruel. Here's Barbara Lavolo again. That sign really gets me. If you lived here, you'd be home now. It drives me insane. I'm to see that. And my girlfriend always says, I did live here when you threw me out, she said every time. But, you know, it was prime property, and they took it. The West End was far from the only neighborhood in the United States that was destroyed in urban renewal projects in the 1950s. But in the decades since, it's become a case study of everything wrong with the urban planning that was common in that era. It remains the textbook example of failed urban planning today. West Enders were studied as a uh, kind of 
example for urban planning, but also in sociology, psychology, um, and a number of other like humanistic fields. Um, the West End is where the concept of traumatic loss for a location was developed. One psychologist found that West Enders experienced grief after being displaced, almost like there had been a death in the family. And some former residents grieved the loss of their home for years. Sebastian says the West End was studied so extensively in so many fields because the project was unusual in a few key respects. For one, it was big, covering more than 50 acres. And the neighborhood was located right next to major universities like Harvard and MIT. But also, unlike most so-called urban renewal projects, the residents of this neighborhood who were displaced were mostly white. Basically, because the you know, establishment, if you will, right, was able to recognize the people that being displaced in the West End Project as people. Um, it was studied in much greater depth. As for the last tenement building itself, the fact that it's still standing is mostly an accident. Its neighbors were demolished in the 70s or 80s, and this one, Sebastian says, was supposed to be demolished for a highway on-ramp sometime in the 90s. But the plans were eventually abandoned due to budget overruns. You can actually still rent an apartment in this building. Check it out on Zillow, 42 Lamazny Way. A one-bed will set you back about 1800 a month, which is actually, sad to say, pretty cheap for Boston these days. Unfortunately, the West End Museum was damaged by flooding earlier this year and is closed until further notice. But you can still check out their videos and donate to cleanup efforts at thewestendmuseum.org. Special thanks to Sebastian Belfonti for telling me the story of the West End and to the West End Museum for giving us permission to use clips of the video newsletter. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. Our production team includes... Dylan Therese. Guinevere Govea. Doug Baldinger. Chris Naka. Camille Stanley. Willis Ryder Arnold. Sarah Wyman. Manolo Morales. McKenna Smith. Gianna Palmer. Tracy Samuelson. John Delore. Peter Clowney. Our technical director is... Casey Holford. This episode was mixed by... Luce Fleming. Our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall... And if you want to learn more, be sure to visit atlasobscura.com. There is a link in the episode description. I'm Amanda McGowan, wishing you all the wonder in the world. I will see you next time. Witness Docs from Stitcher.